Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation between Janet Somerville and Heather Marshall. Our host, Janet, taught creative writing for 20 years, is a regular books contributor to the Toronto Star, and is the author of Yours for Probably Always, Martha Gellhorn's Letters of Love and War, 1930-1949. Her current project is a deep dive into the correspondence of Morley Callahan. Janet's guest is Heather Marshall. Her best-selling debut, inspired by true stories, is Looking for Jane, a novel about three women whose lives are bound together by a long-lost letter, a mother's love, and a secret network of women fighting for the right to choose. As recent events south of the border have taught us, the fight for human rights, equality, and autonomy continues. And anyone who thought the matter settled is mistaken. Sadly, there are bigots and misogynists desperate to ensure that women's bodies are not their own. To find out more about the Maternity Home Justice Project, visit heathermarshallauthor.com justice. Here's their conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm so delighted to be spending this time speaking with the number one national debut bestseller, Heather Marshall, about her incredible novel, Looking for Jane, that is not only available in many English territories right now, but also in translation in Brazil, coming to you soon, and Italy and France and the Netherlands. And I think you'll understand once we talk a little bit about the book, why this novel is important and its issues are timeless and why people all around the world will be looking for Jane and talking about looking for Jane. So welcome, Heather Marshall. I thought we could start. Janet. Yes. Yeah. I thought we could start by having you read a short excerpt from the book. And if you want to just set that up, uh, the context of it, um, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about that before we get to uh, other prompts. Sure. So uh, for those who have read the book, I'm going to be reading um, the scene with Maggie in the bathroom towards the end. For those who haven't read it, I don't think, I'm just having a quick look here. I don't think there's going to be any particular spoilers for you, so worry not. But I'll just jump right into that, and then Janet and I can discuss uh, the history behind this scene. Maggie closes the bathroom door behind her. Her sister-in-law has draped an assortment of fussy lace doilies over the back of the toilet tank. Several pots of face and hand creams are clustered together on the counter beside the sink. Rolls of fluffy pink hand towels are folded with unnatural neatness on a shelf above the toilet. Maggie turns the brass key in the lock and hears it slide into place with a satisfying click. She doesn't want to be disturbed. For months now, she's not had a moment alone. She craves peace and quiet and solitude and an end to the chaos. Her brother told her to go take a bath, then have a nap, and that they would talk once she had rested a while. She grips her hands on the edge of the counter now, bracing her weak body as she observes herself in the mirror. The girls were not allowed a mirror at the home, but it's only now that Maggie truly wonders why they were denied one. She can barely stand to look at her own reflection, meet her own eyes, heavy with an indescribable exhaustion she fears she won't ever recover from. 
Her complexion is pallid, her features sunken and waxy. Her cheekbones are sharper than she's ever seen them. Maggie glances down at the stack of Chatelaine magazines in the rack beside the toilet. A fresh young brunette graces the cover with penciled brows, red lips, and full rouged cheeks, pretty and clean and new. She'll teach you how to make the perfect bunt cake for Sunday tea and settle a fussy child, how to clean your husband's shirts to pure white perfection, starched and ironed and ready for him each morning. Maggie wonders if the smiling cover girl can also offer lessons on how to scrub away the sweat and blood of the past, the incriminating stains of transgressions and bad fortune, lipstick from your husband's collar in a shade you don't own. And I think we will leave it there. I think that's a great a little taste. Uh, a great place to stop. And also that, uh, you know, the novel has three narrative threads, one in, in 1960, basically 1960, another in uh, 1979, and then sort of uh, today around 2017. And that one's from 1960. Do you want to talk about um, how you had to fight for that scene to stay in the novel? Mm -hmm. So, um, and again, I think I'm going to have to just preface this, that there might be some spoilers here, but I'll hope that uh, those listening have read the book. So in the very early draft, there were actually four points of view, and Maggie was one of them. And we had, um, we rejigged where the twist came towards the end there. And uh, it ended up coming much later than it did in my early draft. But when I was first pitching this to agents, it got picked up uh, very quickly, which was wonderful. But my agent said, I think we need to cut Maggie's point of view, which just had me floored. And I thought, I don't know how we're possibly going to do this. And um, I managed it. It was, uh, it took some, what will we call them? Literary gymnastics, I suppose, and a lot of uh, very careful revision. But there was this one chapter with Maggie that, um, was very close to my heart. It was actually one of the earlier scenes that I wrote. It just sort of, I write them as they come to me and it came to me quite early. And I really felt that it showcased some of the best writing I've ever done. And this chapter was actually what I sent into the Humber School for Writers, their summer program, when I applied to that in 2019. And that's what got me in. And uh, that set me down a path to success with this novel. So I was having this very sort of visceral reaction to cutting this from the book, even though I had killed so many other darlings prior to that. So um, we were able to find a way to keep this one this one chapter. So I will reassure uh, any aspiring writers out there that your editors and your agent, uh, you know, they're not the enemy. They want the best book possible for everyone, but they do also want to listen to you and your creative input. And I just knew that especially in my debut, this was something that I just, I couldn't let go. I wanted to make sure that it was in the book. Well, and, and I think it's important to advocate for what matters to you in your book, because in the end, it is your book as much um, support and uh, help that agents and editors provide. As you said, they do want to um, come out with the best possible book that you can uh, produce so but it's also good to listen to your own heart and and um, to stay true to that because that matters that I, I think that that matters now Absolutely. you hinted a little bit here about 
processing, you write, because this was going to be one of my questions for you, because <laughs> I think that readers are interested in, that you write the scenes as they come to you. Because with so many narrative threads, not only, I mean, in the end, you have three distinct narrative threads, and they all intertwine in a meaningful way. And so my question for you uh, originally was going to be, do you write each narrative thread independently, or do you work on them at the same time? And I think you sort of already answered that, but I'll let you take that on. Sure. I um, I find one of the best ways to stay productive is to just write the scenes or chapters that are already in my mind. Um, sometimes they're kind of playing like a film reel. Like I can I can really see what's happening. So I think you know, I'm not writing chronologically or I'm not writing that character's perspective right now, but why put that off and kind of stifle that creative juice if it wants to come to the surface now? So I'll generally write the scenes as they come to me, but for this novel, yeah, I ended up essentially writing each point of view um, independently and then weaving them together. And I find that sort of helps because it allows you to really sink into each character's mind as you're writing it, as opposed to if you're flipping back and forth or flipping between three uh, different points of view, you can kind of lose each character's voice a little bit if you're right. I was going to, to say, yeah. say that about the keeping the narrative voices distinct from each other when exactly. you're when you're managing the the several narrative threads that. Um, I would imagine that that's that that's a challenge uh, to do that, and you have your own strategies for for sorting that out. You know, John Irving always said that he never starts writing a novel until he knows the final sentence. So, for oh. example, and he said he claims whether this is true or not, whether it's apocryphal, I don't know, but he claims that he doesn't change the punctuation or the syntax at all. Once he settles on the final sentence, for example, in the world, according to Garp, we are all terminal cases. That's the fine. He writes to that final sentence. Then the entire novel unspools itself and drives towards that final sentence. Did you have your own ending in place uh, when you began writing? I did. And that's um, something I do like to talk about. And I didn't know that about John Irving. I feel um, humbled, shall there I say, to be uh, <laughs> in a similar company. process. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I won't congratulate myself too much. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I do find that it uh, it helps to work back from the finale. I know that a lot of writers do write chronologically. And I think part of my problem is that I'm not um a plotter like I do fly by the seat of my pants and I like the creative process to kind of take me in directions that I hadn't anticipated with the characters but I do need to know where it's going to end because then the characters are all driving as you say towards that and when I first came up with the idea for looking for Jane it was a composite of two ideas about the homes for unwed mothers and the history of women's right to abortion and reproductive choice in Canada. And when I finally sort of decided that's what I was going to write and I had this idea about a reunion between um, mother and her lost daughter and the the image again just kind of fell into my mind with this reunion and I knew she was going to say 
I've been looking for you. And that was also when the title came to mind. And um, it works so well because all three of the characters are in some way or another looking for Jane. They are, and, um, indeed. So there was never a question about the book's title. <laughs> that was That's... accepted without question by everyone the whole way along. <laughs> now, I want to know, did you name the baby Jane before you knew about the Janes? Or did you know about the Janes in Chicago, that abortion, safe abortion network in Chicago in the 1970s and, and 80s? Did you know about them first? I did, yes. And then I thought, you know, to kind of, um, I suppose, wordsmith it a little bit or to add different layers to the search for Jane, I decided that the character was also going to be named Jane. Well, and you also have um, Evelyn having written a book called The Jane Network, Mm -hmm. right? That's another sort of sort of Russian nesting doll. Right, uh, it's a bit meta, kind of. The, yeah, yeah, it is a bit yeah. meta, right? But yeah. I love that as a reader. I I love that, and I'm sure your 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 many readers um, appreciate that as well. And it's also a good reminder because you see when Angela goes through the the title page or the index of of Evelyn's book, key points like. R versus Morgenthaler in 1988. So do you want to maybe talk a little bit about how that moment in Canadian history also um, figures in this novel? Yeah, so it's interesting because, um, you know, Henry Morgenthaler made these incredible sacrifices. He was performing safe medical abortions when it was illegal, as were many other doctors, but he was arguably the most vocal and open about it. Um, you know, he was uh, essentially happily to have happy to have the media <laughs> come to his clinic. And he said, yep, this is what I'm doing. And I know it's illegal, hence why he was arrested and served jail time on a number of occasions. So, you know, that and why his clinics were bombed. I mean, I'm exactly to remember this happening in in real time, because, you know, the Mm -hmm. the 1980s were my young adulthood. And this was this news about Morgan Taller. Morgan Taller was front and center in the news and what he was doing for women's rights and women's Mm -hmm. agency at a time when nobody else was publicly doing it was astonishing. Right. And I mean, there were attempts on his life, you know, people tried to attack him, like, this all still happens often in America and other countries, but he just um, put himself out there in a way that others weren't and brought media attention to it. And I do think that he expedited the process. I think that legalization would have come and there were plenty of people working behind the scenes to make that happen. But they did, the movement sort of needed that very vocal, risky champion to sort of push it over the finish line. Um, I do think we're we're quite indebted to him and the people that worked closely with him. But I did want to sort of show, again, those people that were working more quietly and behind the scenes in this book, because he is such a, a big character. He's such a personality and he's been covered elsewhere. And so I didn't want the book to just be about him. This was more about, um, yeah, what the others were doing and primarily what, what the women were doing. Right. And, the legacy um, of, of women. Exactly. He, he does have an important cameo. And um, when Evelyn is training in medical school in Montreal mm-hmm. and you get to see, I think what's so important about that cameo is the compassion uh, that is demonstrated by his character 
and the compassion that she then uses as part of her own legacy in the work that she does. And when she gets involved with, with the Jane Network herself um, as a practicing physician, it's, um, mm -hmm. it's all really beautifully intertwined there. Now, I know that there's another little background piece before you got to the real writing of the book where you cold called Judy Rebick. Will you talk a little bit about that? I'm sure some of the people turning into the podcast know who she is, but maybe others don't know how important she was. Maybe tell us a little sure. bit about that. So Judy Rebick is a complete firecracker. I refer to her as an infamous and famous Canadian feminist. And uh, again, talk about vocal. She was very involved um, directly in Morgenthaler's close circle during the fight throughout the 70s and 80s. And uh, she now runs rabble.ca. And when I was doing the research for this book, um, Dr. Morgenthaler had passed by that point. And I was trying to get in touch with Dr. Scott, who he worked quite closely with. Um, and unfortunately, uh, due to some uh, personal health issues, he wasn't available for the interview. But I wanted to talk to someone who was sort of really in the thick of it as closely as I could. And so I contacted Judy. I just sent an email and said, hi, I'm a nobody and I'm writing this book and I'd like to chat with you about your experience. And she got right back to me. So uh, when I was in Toronto for the summer doing the uh, Humber School for Writers program in 2019, I met with her and we chatted for a couple of hours and uh, she gave me a very thorough um, picture of what it looked like on the ground, what it felt like. And that was what I really wanted to capture. I mean, we, you know, we all sort of have a sense that abortion rights just sort of came to be. And I really wanted in this novel to show that there were very real people making those incredible sacrifices to make that happen. So um, yeah, her conversation was fabulous. And uh, a lot of what she said helped sort of form my foundational ideas for the Jane storyline. Um, you know, the network in Canada wasn't called Jane. It was far looser than it was in the States. Um, and as I mentioned in the author's note, you know, records weren't kept because what they were doing was illegal. It was all very um, underground. So you have to sort of find the people that are willing to talk about it. There's there's no records to examine as such. So it was great to chat with her. And um, as I say, I used that interview to sort of help uh, color the Jane's storyline. And um, I'm, I hope I've given voice to all those women and allies that uh, helped push abortion access over the finish line. Well, and a lot of them are ordinary women, you know, who oh, yeah. are brave and who are willing to risk um, for the safety of others, for the safety of strangers. Right. And uh, especially now, it feels like that kind of generosity of mm -hmm. spirit is, is something that we don't see enough of. and and. Um, it's good to be reminded of that generosity of, of spirit, you know, and that it, you do it. I think you, you have a bit of fun too with, with the police raid and with, and I don't think that's ruining anything to say there's a police <laughs> raid because there are several <laughs> police raids. Um, and with the abortion caravan um, in Ottawa with uh, Pierre Trudeau, when he was in power, do you want to talk a little bit about, the history of, of that? 
Of the abortion caravan? Of the, about the abortion caravan and what yeah. happened when they yeah. lied. So, and- uh, exactly. So in 1969, um, there was a, a very vague loosening of the restrictions on abortion and women could access one um you know, generally women with the means to do so, let's be honest, um, could access one if a panel of primarily male doctors approved her through something called the Therapeutic Abortion Committee. So this was sort of the first step in trying to expand access, but obviously it was woefully inadequate. So in early 1970, a caravan of women set out from Vancouver and they were taking the show on the road out to Ottawa and their goal was to arrive in Ottawa on Mother's Day weekend and do a protest on the lawn at Parliament Hill and try to speak to some politicians and garner media attention to the issue of abortion access and this new law that was completely inadequate. So they're they're just incredible. Um, you know, I think back on on what that era looked like, and you know, women's lib was hot news. Um, this was something that was being heavily covered in the media. And, um, you know, they were successful in getting the media attention on it. At one point, they, uh, they did sort of, um, <laughs> they got into the uh, question period by disguising themselves as, you know, proper ladies wearing uh, gloves and skirts and hats. And they and, had men allies with yes, them too, didn't they? That's what Judy told me. Yeah, they called them their beards, and uh, that's mentioned <laughs> right. in the book. But right. they said, yeah, unfortunately, it would have um, created, you know, too much. It would have garnered too much attention having that many women that interested in question period on a given day, which also says something. Oh, it's so but, outrageous, um, isn't it? <laughs> right, exactly. Oh. So they disguised themselves and went into question period and uh, they tried to chain themselves to the railings. They created quite a fuss. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, that's the first time that the chamber was shut down. And uh, again, media media covered it. So it was some years later, obviously, when um, Dr. Morgenthaler had all of his provincial court battles, but this was just simmering for so long. And the abortion caravan was something that you know, again, I never learned in school. I don't know if it even ever came up in my feminist studies classes. Which I learned that through. Isn't exactly. It? It's so astonishing. It's the same, and and I'll get you to talk uh, quite a bit about this too. But the maternity home scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, how was that not part of our education? Both you and I. You know, I did an undergraduate degree with with um, history courses. Nothing, nothing Nothing. about either of these things. Right. You know, it just, it's astonishing to me. And that was one of the things that sort of struck me when I set out to write this book was that, yeah, I'm a feminist who studied history in sort of advanced academic way. And I had never come across these things. So the odds of sort of, you know, my average reader having this knowledge seemed fairly slim. Um, I know I was a bit sort of, shocked that I had never come across this information, didn't have this knowledge. So that was something that I really wanted to share in an accessible way through a novel to fictionalize it. But, um, you know, I've just been thrilled at the response from readers of people saying, I had no idea that any of this occurred, or I'm too young to have known that this occurred. But now I've gone and done a Google search and I've self-educated and I'm learning more. And that's one of the best things for me to hear as a writer and particularly a writer of historical fiction, because we do also want to educate as well as entertain. 
And, um, you know, that's just been the best thing for me to hear. I just keep saying, yes, please go learn more. Um, tell your friends, you know, these are, these are issues that people should be aware of and aren't. Right. And before I forget this too, please go to Heather's website, which is Heather marshallauthor.com and click on justice because there you can find out more about the maternity home justice project which is uh, something that i think all canadians need to be aware of and heather do you want to talk a little bit uh, about it because it um it has emerged from uh, two of the characters in the novel, for sure, the way they were treated in the maternity homes. And we'll come back to the characters, but talk about the maternity home justice project itself. Absolutely. So when I was doing this research, um, again, you know, from people who have read the novel or the, the author's note, I made a very deliberate decision to try to depict this as accurately as possible. And um, I think it's one of the reasons that it's resonating so much with readers is that it does seem very real. I didn't want to sensationalize or downplay what these women experienced. And it's been very humbling in the aftermath. I've been contacted by many survivors of the maternity home system who have said, you know, you, you really did get it right. That's That's exactly what my experience was like, which is very humbling and gratifying, but also horrifying. <laughs> so I did this research and was, again, yes, completely horrified by what I had read and went down a bit more of a research rabbit hole and discovered that in 2018, the Senate committee sort of, um, they struck a committee to study this and in 2019 released a report. And in that report, there were several recommendations for what the government could do to provide some measure of justice to these survivors. And I would like to note that, you know, it's estimated that there were 300,000 women that were impacted. I've been told more recently that that's actually a conservative estimate and it may be closer to 400,000. Um, so that's a city, that's a city of girls who had their babies, um, you know, were forced or coerced into giving up their babies for adoption at government funded homes. So just let that sink in for a moment. Church, mostly yes. church run homes. Exactly, exactly. So um, it became very important to me to help, um, you know, push through this apology. So there's an organization called Origins Canada which was founded and is run by a researcher named Valerie Andrews, who is also a survivor of the maternity home system. And they have done so much legwork on the ground, uh, lobbying on Parliament Hill. Um, you know, they're still in touch with those senators that did the study. They've been trying and trying to get the government to, you know, um, to come through on these recommendations. And they've made some headway, but it seems to have stalled. So I have been in touch with Valerie and um, just a just an incredible, incredible woman. And my agenda and my goal, my wish with this novel is to use it as um, a springboard to add the momentum of this novel to all of the legwork that those women have already done to try to secure the apology. Because it really is the least we can do um, as Canadians is an apology. It, it costs nothing, um, but it can mean a lot. 
So I continue to just be flummoxed as to why the government continues to drag its feet on this four years later. Well, especially when you consider so many of those women who were forced to give up their babies are are women now in their 70s and 80s, you know, with children in their 50s and 60s. Yeah, like you, I I just do not understand why at the very least there hasn't been an official apology and encourage all of you listening to please to to please spread the word and and um, advocate for this uh, because it, it would mean so much to all of these people to the women and to their to their children. And the thing is so um, horribly. Right. And one thing that uh, that Valerie sort of um, opened my eyes to, which makes perfect sense, was that when it comes to their lobbying efforts, there's only a very small percentage of these survivors that are willing and able to, you know, to, to come forward and talk about their story and advocate. The whole point of these homes was that, you know, they weren't talked about at the time and the women were told to never talk about it afterwards and many of them never did or still haven't so trying to get a woman who was told to leave and forget that she ever had a baby and move on with her life who has carried this with her this trauma for decades perhaps never told her family let alone march down to parliament hill and demanded an apology you know, it's it's an incredible amount to ask of people to come Which forward is why to do we that. Need so to step forward. Exactly. And, and we need to add our voices have. to theirs. Exactly. Exactly. So I just implore all of the readers, if you were moved by this book, just please, please, please take the time to contact your MP and the Prime Minister. I've worked in politics and I know that these things do get flagged when enough emails come in or enough phone calls come in about a certain issue that that gets flagged, it gets run up the line and, you know, conversations can happen about, oh, is this something that we need to maybe bump up the priority list? So that is my hope. It just seems like such a waste of an opportunity to not use this book to help Origins Canada sort of, again, push that apology over the finish line. And any one of us can call our MP or email our MP and make that request. And if you would like some help in forming the language around that, again, just go to Heather's website and um, look under the justice tab and there's information about the maternity home justice project there for you to, to give you the information that, um, that you need to, to email somebody in a convincing way. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. Can we talk a little bit about the three different women's stories in the novel? Uh, we can um, Angela and her partner Tina in 2017, Evelyn and Nancy Mitchell to give people a sense of of how this story is a timeless story. 
So one of the reasons I did the three perspectives in three different yet overlapping timelines was because I, I really did want to showcase sort of this sweeping history of women's reproductive rights and choices in Canada and show the evolution of that, of how far it's come, but in some ways how far it still has to go, um, or at the very least the... Um, the awareness that we should have to continue to protect those rights once we've secured them. So I have uh, Evelyn in 1960s and pulling that thread through uh, for the entire novel, but she is sent to a maternity home when she's pregnant out of wedlock and is given uh, no choice over the matter that she must surrender her baby for adoption. So that there shows that first of all, girls were not educated about how to prevent a pregnancy to begin with. The onus of that pregnancy fell solely on their shoulders and people in positions of authority, like their priests and their parents who should have been protecting them, um, sort of, you know, uh, railroaded them and forced them through this system. They had absolutely no agency over their lives at that point and then had to carry that trauma with them for decades and we're told to never talk about it again so with a with a modern lens on that i mean it just screams multi-million dollar lawsuit um we find it you know pretty incredible to even think that people could be treated that way and it would be not just socially accepted but socially sanctioned so then the next character nancy um her primarily her storyline takes place in the 80s and she uh, gets pregnant when she doesn't want to be and ends up contacting this underground abortion network to give her a safe medical abortion. And then she becomes involved with the network and trying to help other women have that same choice. So again, something that she was able to secure, it was safe. Um, it didn't risk her life to secure that abortion but it was still very much underground. She never told anyone about it. Um, massive amount of secrecy and shame involved in her decisions. And uh, without giving too much away, we see uh, the repercussions of those choices throughout Nancy's life. And then in 2017, we have a same-sex couple who is trying to get pregnant through artificial insemination. And it was important to me if I was doing sort of a, you know, trying to do as much of a 360 on motherhood as I could to also show the angle of infertility of women who desperately want to be pregnant and are having trouble with that or aren't able to do that. And um, there was a character in an early draft. Uh, it was actually Evelyn's sister-in-law who was having trouble with that. And we, I rejigged some things and it ended up being Angela. But I really wanted to make sure that we honored that struggle as well because it is faced by so many women um, you know, and again, the things that aren't talked about as much like miscarriage, that one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. And there is still kind of a shroud of secrecy around that. And, you know, with, with same-sex couples, obviously they face different challenges or, you know, fertility treatments that aren't covered by um, government medical insurance and so on and so forth. So I hope that um, I was able to provide that sort of sweeping story over the decades, but to show, yeah, how far we've come and uh, in some ways where things can still be improved. Well, and how there's still, there will always be a need. Yes. There will always be a need as we're, see especially as we're seeing now south of 
of the border where individual states are clawing back uh, women's rights to any agency over their bodies, uh, regardless of of the circumstances. It's absolutely and, yeah. And criminalizing abortion, you know, it yeah. it doesn't stop abortions. No, it just drives them into back alleys, and then more women die. So right. One of the things uh, I'd love to hear you talk about is this notion of every child a wanted child, every mother mm -hmm. a willing mother, which is a, sort of it. It's the kernel at the beating heart of the story, right? Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, that was the the mantra of, um, you know, just to some extent, the entire women's lib movement with regard to reproductive choice, but, um, you know, particularly also the abortion caravan. And like, it was always this sort of sentiment that people were rallying around. And, you know, in the author's note, I think I mentioned that it seems like such a simple and straightforward thing that, you know, how wonderful and beautiful is it and so straightforward that every child should be wanted and every mother should be willing and she can then be the best mother that she can possibly be because she is willing and desperately wants that um you know to say that children should be unwanted is just such a desperately sad sentiment and has ripple effects through the mother's life obviously as well so that was one of the things that that really resonated with me. And, you know, as, as a woman who supports freedom of reproductive choice, that's kind of a personal mantra too. Um, that's what's important to me. And that's what I believe it stands for, you know, the, for me anyway, the importance is to have the choice, regardless of what that choice is. If you're pregnant and, you know, you don't want to be, but decide that you want to go through with the pregnancy and give that child up for adoption, or you want to keep the child because you change your mind halfway through the pregnancy or what have you, the, the importance is the agency that you are making that choice for yourself based on no outside forces, that that is what you truly want. And I think that's the only way that a woman could ever be at peace with her decision, regardless of what that decision is. So that's also the the dedication um, is to my child, who was yes. a most wanted child to a most willing mother. Yes, and I think maybe Heather, that's a perfect place to stop. <laughs> you know, to end at the beginning. Um, and I want to thank you again for your for your time. I hope. Um, People checking out this podcast for the Ottawa International Writers Festival have um, learned something uh, about our own history here in Canada and are moved to read Looking for Jane and um, to advocate for the lives of, of strangers in, in their lives. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Janet. That was Janet Somerville in conversation with Heather Marshall about her best-selling debut novel, Looking for Jane. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.